Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Jungian analyst John Beebe and host Michael Lerner. John Beebe, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Mm. It's a great honor to have you here. Mm. Uh, you celebrated your 80th birthday on I, June 24th. I did. In China. Well, not quite. Not I was quite. in China in late April and May, but that, they couldn't wait. They celebrated they me yeah. in a variety of ways. So that was lovely to be. And you also were there on your eighth birthday. Well, yes. Uh, they gave me a birthday party this year in Nanjing, a lovely party. Uh, with every Chinese people are among the friendliest, most welcoming people in the world. If you've visited there, we have such a distorted idea if you just hear Joe and Lai's pronouncements or current news. It's, a, it's by far they're the nicest people in the entire world. Uh, mm-hmm. and maybe I should just say something about that before saying anything about my, my birthday. <laughs> I was a child in in Nanking, as we called it then, because in November of 1946, my mother and I took a boat from Seattle, Washington, to Shanghai to join my father, who had been appointed the assistant military attaché to a General Seoul, who was the uh, attaché in China. When America was sort of at the end of a failed mission to so-called save China by General Stilwell. It's been all reported in a famous book by Barbara Tuckman, General Stilwell and America's Failure in China. And, of course, Richard Nixon came to power because he headed the China lobby that thought the Democrats, argued that the Democrats had lost China to us and the Republicans would somehow solve that problem, and so that was a long-ago politics. But when my father took that job, it was already a matter, it, it was already clear that it was just a matter of time before the Chinese Revolution took place. Mao was massed with forces that were far better trained and far more motivated than Chiang Kai-shek's Chiang Kai-shek had a corrupt nationalistic government in, uh, in, in Nanking. And so there were about 300 army advisors, and there was uh, an, an ambassador. And then there was the military attaché who sort of carried the relationship between the little military group and the diplomatic group. But basically, all, all my parents did was go out to, to, to dinner every night with, with people from all the other nations. Uh, the Egyptian ambassador had been exiled to China because he'd uh, had, got, had a relationship with uh, Farouk's daughter, the princess of Egypt, and Farouk's wife was in love with him, so she got him. Uh, it, 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 was, it was pretty wild. It was like something that you'd read. And my parents were sort of like the Fitzgeralds in the 20s in China in the, in the late 1940s. My mother was very beautiful, and my father had Clark Gable's mustache, and he was from Mars, and she was from Venus. And it was gone with the wind in, in Nanking, China. It was quite, it was, and, and I was their only child, and uh, 
um, I sat in the basement with a little girl named Alice Turner, who later became the uh, administrative director of the Merce Cunningham Dance Group. But back then, she was just, <laughs> or rather, her, her our other friend, Jean Rigg, did, actually. But Alice Turner was, was a diplomat's daughter. She and I would sit down and read the Oz books. I had a whole set of Oz books that my mother had gotten from a friend. So we would read the Oz books, and I would draw maps of the land of Oz, which were mandalas. And, and that way, kept my American identity in this quickly va- to be vanishing Emerald City where I was actually living. And uh, so, yes, I had my eighth birthday in, the, in, in Nanjing. I went back to China in 1998 for the first time since I left with my mother. We were described as evacuated. We left Nan- uh, Nanking in 1948 in November because the coming down from the north by Mao was seen as just a matter of weeks. It actually took place in April of 1949. But my father stayed under house arrest for a year. By the time he returned, my parents were divorced. And, uh, uh, that period of my life with them was over. So 50 years later, I was early enough sent back to China like my father on a diplomatic mission. The Chinese had gotten interested in Jungian psychology and this was going to be the first conference on analytical psychology and Chinese culture. And I was there to represent and give the keynote address as the representative of the International uh, Association for Analytical Psychology that I would ever, like my father, be sent to the Far East to, 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 to accomplish a diplomatic problem. And I guess we all have to work on what has been spoiled by the father, and mm-hmm. as the I Ching says, and uh, they do say, it does say, if there is a son, no blame rests on the departed father. So I've been going to China for 21 years since, and I achieved my diplomatic mission. This year, in August, in Vienna, the International Association of Analytical Psychology approved its first Chinese society of Jungian analysts. So they now have their own society, and in three years they'll be able to do their own training. So who would have thought life would give me that kind of opportunity to go back and from something that had gone totally wrong and get something really right. And so I feel very happy about that. that was, that's one of the things that I'm very grateful for. But to tell you about the Chinese and their enormous welcoming quality, when I went back in 1998, I wasn't thinking so much about my childhood, although of course I was, but I wasn't. Uh, I... I I was thinking more about Tiananmen Square, and I had the same reaction when I, we had our first Jungian conference in Berlin. I had to, was I going into the heart of darkness when we went there in 1986? I mean, it was very, ner- very nervous to land in Berlin, and it, same with China. To be in Beijing and just to be aware of Tiananmen Square and to be staying at the same hotel my mother had stayed at, uh, at when uh, the, it used to be called the Wagon Lee, it was the, the, the uh, train hotel. It was the first international hotel in 
China built in 1900 or so. And when I went back and stayed with it in, in, in 1998, the carpet hadn't been changed, the halls. I was still where I was as a little boy uh, of nine in that, that summer, but there was Tiananmen Square. And did you dare even to cross because you weren't sort of allowed in certain areas? And did you, so, so just crossing over near Tiananmen Square, I was nervous uh, across the street, the hotel. And then I'm crossing back, and oh, my stars, I've gone against a red light. <clears throat> and I'm just sure I'm going to end up in a Chinese jail. I'm just falling over. And so this young Chinese officer called me over and looked at me and asked for my passport. And he looked at it very long and hard, and he looked at me very long and hard, and I think he figured out what he was dealing with. A complete idiot who can't read a, <laughs> a traffic sign, even when it's in sign language. <clears throat> so then this young officer put his arm around me and held me. And he looked at the sign, and when it said green, he pointed to go. <laughs> and that just absolutely melted me. And that's who the Chinese really are. They're the, they're the warmest people. They're natural introverted intuitives with fantastic auxiliary extroverted feeling, if you know Jung's type theory. They're basically INFJs as a cultural type. And the compensation of because they had, were so ravaged by the West. And the thing that both Mao and Chiang achieved is that China is now for the Chinese. And they don't have to make concessions in Shanghai to the French. And they don't have to have American soldiers sitting on the emperor's throne anymore and insulting their country. They, they, they have their country. And so they've had this enormous overcompensation of trying to bring up their inferior function of extroverted sensation and make themselves economic successes. And of course, that's led to a very sad situation where, which I found out in 1998, where someone who, from, who studied psychology in America at Yantai University used the famous test, paper and pencil test of psychopathology, the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is supposed to be able to identify major depression, schizophrenia, paranoia, so forth. And uh, it turned out that a third of the students were clinically depressed. It's not just that the so hard to get it, it was then particularly so hard to get into a Chinese university. And there was so much family pressure on the people. The living situation was very poor. The rooms were often unheated. There were hardly room to put books. People were on bunk beds, all kinds of creature uh, poverty. But I think the real reason that so many Chinese students were, were depressed, I can say this here, here at Commonweal, is that they didn't have anything to believe in. After the Cultural Revolution, the faith in communism had fallen apart. Now they were trying the two systems, 
but you got an education in order to get your eyes operated on to look more Western because you could afford it, in order to have a car and a color television set and work for a corporation. It, it, I mean, the payoff for a, for a Chinese student of actually getting an education was a spiritual poverty in favor of a greater material success. And uh, so... What I found just coming for that first lecture uh, in 1998 and what I've found ever since is that they found in psychological services and psychotherapy a phenomenal opportunity to express something that's, that they can believe in, something spiritual. There's a huge orphan population that needs care. And there's now a network all over China of people offering Jungian psychotherapy services in Sanplay to these orphans. At the time of the Sichuan earthquake, uh, two Jungian ther uh, therapists, both of them are now analysts, uh, uh, and husband and wife, Dr. Hoyang Shen and, and, and Professor Galan, um, set up tents in the site of the Sichuan earthquake. And for nine months, Jungian psychotherapists stayed there offering psychotherapy services to children who've lost most of their class, many of them their parents, many of them their teachers, the school building had collapsed. And they were letting people have emergency Jungian treatment to just process the self-injury that had taken place, and they became national heroes as a result. And that's just the Jungian story. Every kind of psychology is welcome. Uh, my friend Kirk Schneider, who's an existential humanistic psychotherapist, uh, goes there. Um, many psychoanalysts have gone there. Um, positive psychologists go there, uh, cognitive behavioral therapists. Uh, it's, it's astonishing how many people go there. And now... Psychology is the most popular major in Chinese universities, which is just amazing. So you go as a teacher from the West, for some reason, the government doesn't see any danger. They see it as, as a human service. They haven't had the political <laughs> explosion that we've had in psychotherapy, where practically all of our psychotherapy offices are places where people talk about the situation in this country these days, but, uh, it, but there, there they, they do talk about how they feel about their country, but they're still enjoying the private space for reflection where that not everything is collective self. And uh, so we're very welcome there, and they're very welcoming to us, and so I've been treated very well there and uh, had a wonderful opportunity. I spend about nine hours a week in China online. I, I do uh, seminars, I do analysis, I do supervision. And so about nine hours of every week, I'm talking to people in China, and they're just wonderful people doing wonderful psychotherapy work. Uh, naturally psychological, it seems to me, and extraordinarily respectful. So for me, this last 21 years has been a a thrilling opening up of a possibility I never thought I would have. Let me, first of all, thank you for that beautiful response to a question about where you spent your eighth birthday. <laughs> <laughs> what a joy. You begin to get a sense 
of an extraordinary human being I'm sitting here with. And I want to introduce you a little more formally. Uh, you uh, were born June 24th, 1939 in Washington, D.C. You're a Jungian analyst in practice in San Francisco. You attended Harvard College and the University of Chicago Medical School. You're past president of the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco on the teaching faculty, a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, you are a well-known lecturer in the Jungian world. Uh, you uh, speak on topics related to the theory and practical applications of analytic psychology. You've been especially active, as you mentioned, in introducing training in Jungian psychology in China. Uh, you're the founding editor of the San Francisco Jung Institute Libra Library Journal, now called Jung Journal of Culture and Psyche, the first American co-editor of the London-based Journal of Analytic Psychology. You published in 25 different periodicals I won't go through. You are the author of two books. One is called Integrity in Depth, A Study of the Archetypal, Archetype of Integrity. And the second is called Energies and Patterns in Psychological Type, The Reservoir of Consciousness. I'd like to come back to those two books. An avid film buff, you draw on American movies to illustrate how the various types of consciousness and unconsciousness interact to produce images of self and shadow in the stories of our lives that Jung called individuation, and you've been widely read in that area. With Virginia Apperson, you're the co-author of The Presence of the Feminine in Film, and you can be seen discussing film in the documentary The Wisdom of the Dream. Among your better-known papers are Attitudes Toward the Unconscious, The Father's Anima as a Clinical and as a Symbolic Problem, on Male Partnership, Primary ambivalence toward the self, its nature and treatment, towards a Jungian analysis of character and the trickster in the arts. Mm. You are particularly interested in the way an understanding of typology can foster the development of capacity to take responsibility for our impact on others using Jung's uh, theory of psychological types, where contrasting attitudes of extroversion and introversion color the judging, rational functions of thinking and feeling, and the perceiving irrational functions of intuition and sensation. And from that, you developed an archetypal model of a dialogical self, where conscious functions contend with more unconscious complexes in the shadow. A person's dominant, preferred function is the hero, which is most allied with a semi-conscious complex called the anima, or anima, the hero is challenged by the opposing personality. Then the next most preferred or auxiliary function is the good parent, which may be counteracted by a shadowy witch senex complex. Similarly, the tertiary function, the child, may be undermined by a more juvenile trickster. Finally, the anima may find itself forced to compete with a demonic personality function which threatens to destroy it, and so forth. So the reason I take the time to read that into the record of this conversation is that you have made an extraordinary contribution to Jungian thought. I mean, obviously, the San Francisco Jung Institute has been a seminal force in Jungian thought in the United States. 
And you have been a seminal force within the San Francisco Jung Institute. And that force not only affects Jungian institutions and, uh, and practitioners around the world, but as you pointed out, you've played a seminal role in bringing that work back to China. Hmm. So as you've just recently had your 80th birthday, <laughs> and as you reflect more broadly on, I'm 75 turning 76, so I find myself, you know, there's the story that we live forward but understand our lives looking backward in a certain way. Hmm. Um, so as you, and I believe you and I both continue to move forward with a lot of our energy, but as you reflect on what has mattered to you in this rich and complex uh, uh, life that, of service that you have lived uh, in archetypal psychology, Jungian psychiatry and psychology, what would you say are, say, three or four principal headings uh, under which you would organize the contributions you have made? I think that's a, I'm impressed. <laughs> who, who, who are you talking about? <laughs> I was too busy living my life to <laughs> add it all up, but thank you <laughs> for doing so. Um, of all the things you said, the one that really I can find myself in is the word life of service. Mm-hmm. I decided to be a psychiatrist um, two days before my 19th birthday. And I didn't tell anyone until my 19th birthday. And the first person I told was the mother of a friend of mine who was a novelist. Uh, In fact, I'm very happy to say that one of her books has just come out in the Library of America, which makes me very happy. Her name is Nancy Hale. And... um, she uh, held the record for the most number of stories sold to the New Yorker in one year, 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in name? the 50s, Nancy Hale, H-A-L-E. Yeah. By uh, the way, you can know, you all hear, does the sound high enough for everybody here? Okay, good. Thank you. You and I talked about how yeah. um, we both, you went to Yale, I went to Harvard. Uh, I was I'm, an undergraduate at Harvard. Yeah, well, yeah. You, had, you have a... Uh, a good friend at some point, um, isn't it? Uh, Timothy Wharton Baker is that the right? Chris Wharton Baker. Chris Wharton Baker. Yeah. Chris Wharton Baker, I think, is from another marriage. Nancy Hale was married to to Charles Wharton Baker, yeah. and my friend at, at Harvard was uh, Bill Wharton Baker. Oh, we were really? In the same geology class together, uh, and uh, one of my roommates had been a roommate of his at the school he went to, and we started hanging out together, and I ended up. Uh, going to uh, Folly Cove, Massachusetts, which is between Gloucester and uh, Rockport on the north shore of, of Massachusetts, and spending a summer. And the big event of that summer was his mother, Nancy Hale, who was a phenomenal woman who had had a Jungian analysis after a kind of breakdown she had after her marriage, delayed a breakdown after her marriage with Charles Wharton Baker, who had envied the fact that she was more successful as a writer than he, and had actually, as a condition of their marriage continuing, forbidden her to do any more writing. Oh, my God. And so she finally got out of that marriage to which my friend Bill was born, but, and 
and, and wrote a book called The Prodigal Women, which was a huge bestseller right under that famous book at the time of the early 1940s, The, the Robe by Lloyd Douglas. But right under The Robe was this good novel by Nancy Hale called The Prodigal Women, which she, uh, famous Max Perkins was her editor, the same editor for Thomas Wolfe and, and Fitzgerald, and he kind of helped her get over her writer's block enough that she could write the book. But after she published that book, she had a nervous breakdown. It was sort of like at last, with the success and the return, to, she could actually do something with all the resentment and feelings of a woman of that time who was told, you know, you're not supposed to be stronger than your husband. It's just an appalling story. And so she went into analysis with a, uh, the first Jungian analyst in America who was Beatrice Hinkle, H-I-N-K-L-E, who had translated Jung's famous book, uh, Symbols of Transformation. And it was called, in 1916, under the title, uh, The Psychology of the Unconscious. And it was... Uh, uh, Jung's first statement of the collective unconscious and the ideas for which he became famous. And Beatrice Hinkle was a remarkable human being. Uh, she was a very good friend of Eleanor Roosevelt's. And there's a long history of believing that, and no one has ever quite been able to prove it, that when Franklin Roosevelt came down with polio, Eleanor arranged for him to have sessions with Beatrice Hinkle. And uh, he, she may, he may even have stayed at her house in uh, Washington, Connecticut, which is called Smoky Hollow, where she had her, uh, her analytic patients who really needed to sort of go into what the ancient world would have called incubation. And just, it wasn't the same thing as an asylum, but it was a sanatorium of a sort where people in a rather deep, introverted breakdown space could come and have a space. So Nancy Hale was there with her and had this marvelous Jungian analysis, which just saved her life. And then, as I say, she became this very prolific writer and wrote a Who was her analyst? Uh, Beatrice Hinkle. Oh, Beatrice Hinkle Beatrice was, was her analyst. Hinkle. I see. Got it. So yeah. the person I chose to tell... I'm sorry, but who was Beatrice Hinkle's analyst? Uh, probably Jung. Probably she had gone to Zurich, and she's in that picture of Freud and Jung and okay. uh, in uh, Clark University. She's a picture there, and she did spend years in. Uh, okay. so, so Jung was her analyst. She okay. was one of, as she was as I said, she was one of the first Jungian right. analysts in those days. To be a Jungian analyst, yeah. you had to be analyzed by Jung himself. Okay. Okay. And he said, "You're an analyst now." I mean, it was sort of like that. We didn't have institutes yet, <laughs> and uh, so that's. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Uh, She's a remarkable human being. Uh, and so you told her. So I tell Nancy Hale. Yeah. And, of course, that was big for me because, like just about every English major at Harvard, I thought I was going to be a novelist when I was accepted. And, uh, you know, and that's what I said I was going to be when I applied to the... And instead, I'm telling her that I'm going to be a psychiatrist. She said, well, you know, if you're going to be a psychiatrist, you can't be a writer, too. You know, she wouldn't let this eternal boy be everything, you know. And, <laughs> I said, well, I hope I can write at least in my field. He said, oh, yes, the kind of books they write. Oh, wonderful, yeah. But no, she, I, I, I couldn't do both, and she was right. And then she said, you know, it's a very self-sacrificing life. She said, you know, I have an old bow. I have this old bow. Uh, and when we were 
we dated when I was 15 and he was 14. I was in a girls' school, he was in a boys' school, but we were all in Massachusetts. And he became a psychiatrist and he went to San Francisco and he worked so hard he broke down and had, had tuberculosis. I had no idea at the time that she was talking about Joe Wheelwright, who founded the Young Institute yeah. of San Francisco, yeah. who later became a tremendously good friend of mine yeah. and very much a kind of a mentor, not an analyst or a supervisor, but a kind of a personal mentor. When I had my first young in, when I first did what I said I was going to do and then got out of medical school and got referred to my first therapist, who was a Jungian. It turned out Joe Wheelwright had another office, and he loved to talk to the patients in the waiting room, waiting for the other analysts. Who was, was very the first analyst that you worked with? John Perry. John Perry. John Perry. Another. Also Another New Englander. Figure. Yeah. Famous figure. Yeah. And uh, so that, that house on Steiner Street uh, uh, in San Francisco was a place where they were, and as he and I got to know each other, it turned out he was, Nancy Hill was coming to San Francisco to, to visit, and I mentioned her, and then it turned out, oh, yes, we dated when I was 14 and she was 15, and it all came. So, it's kind of weird. <laughs> You're listening to a TNS conversation with union analyst John Beebe and host Michael Lerner. You mentioned, and this was lovely, we were talking before we began, and I, we addressed the fact that you just had your 80th birthday, and we had talked about that before, that this was a new period of your life. And um, you said, yes, I'm a Cancer with Virgo rising, a Libra moon, and a Neptune right on the ascendant. And that's uh, how I handled the explosion of the new age. It happened on the ascendant. And it opened my intuition wide open, which for a thinking type was a big deal. I may not have the exact quote. That's close enough. But could you elaborate a little bit on that obviously archetypal system of astrology? In other words, you have a great love of the I Ching, which we're going to get to. But your reference here was to astrology. How deeply have you gone into astrology and how... Do you understand yourself, particularly with respect to the opening of the intuition because Neptune was right on your ascendant? Well, look, we're all child, children. You know, we're all creatures of our environment. Right. Every young man who goes to Harvard thinks he's a thinking type. And he had to act as if he were one or he would never have gotten in. Right. You, you overcome what you became to get in the rest of your life. And it, it's become a gigantic false self, usually, and uh, as you probably know. And so, uh, and if you lived in San Francisco, I came, arrived to do my internship uh, at the Public Health Service Hospital in San Francisco on 15th and Lake in those days. In San Francisco, I, you know, and you were in San Francisco in the fall of 1965, and you bought a copy of Rubber Soul and uh, saw the Jefferson Airplane the first week they opened, as as I did. Um, you knew astrology by 1968. I mean, there was no possible way that that wasn't going to happen to you. Were you drawn to astrology? 
Not initially, not initially. In did fact, you see I, it as an archetypal psychology? Not initially, no. Yeah. I did, it, it, nothing in my life has ever been systematic. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it that way. I, I discovered all these things empirically, as, that they, as Jung claims to do, that I got interested in things that work, and I, don't, and, I, and I learned that it didn't matter to me whether something was scientifically appropriate. When I was a little boy, it's of seven in China, I wanted to be an astronomer. Uh-huh. But, but that was a very opportunistic choice, because I figured... I want to be on the first rocket ship that visits a planet, and I'll need to have an astronomer on the ship. I didn't think they would want, I didn't see myself as the athletic type that usually gets chosen. Even I could see that then in the future, would be the future astronaut. But I could see myself as a bespectacled uh, astronomer. They would take me aboard. And in a way, you did that. Well, who knew? And then this, these English women would say, oh, you're the little boy who wants to be an astrologer. And I was so angry. And that way, no, I'm would be an astronomer. <laughs> but I think she was right. <laughs> and I later, so in the New Age, it just got, someone introduced me to a wonderful astrologer. Mm-hmm. And it was astonishing. And she, and why I brought up my uh, uh, signs and ascendant is it just so happens that every 123 years there's a conjunction of Uranus and Pluto and there was one around the time of the 1848 revolution, which was just changed the political climate, as you know, in uh, Europe ever since. And Karl Marx and everything was emerging out of that. But um, in our time, it was what happened in San Francisco around 1966. And there you had a conjunction of Uranus and Pluto, which is a both a combination of expansion of consciousness and a purging of old consciousness. So we, we, we were getting this new age and, uh, and people were fascinated by all kinds of intuitive extension of consciousness models. And you'd have books like Ralph Messner's Maps of Consciousness would come out by, by the end of the 60s. And I was part of all that. But when I met this astrologer and she actually did my chart and showed me everything, I discovered that that conjunction of Uranus and Pluto was right on the same degree as the degree of the Neptune on my ascendant. And Neptune, explain for those who Neptune don't know on what your that ascendant means. either means being very confused or very intuitive. I chose the way to be. I chose to be very intuitive. It, it's as kind of. The astrologers have these wonderful phrases. They say Neptune is the higher octave of Venus. If Venus is some kind of appreciation of the interpersonal field, symbolized by, above all, by Aphrodite and Venus, uh, love, if you like, but definitely the sensitivity to the relational field that we, in Jungian psychology, speak of as extroverted feeling. Um, Neptune is the higher octave of that because it's a, it's a completely mediumistic sense of what's happening around you. And uh, it can't be explained by any scientific model of the mind that we so far have. Yet I can't believe that 
if it were possible to evolve such a consciousness, it wouldn't have been evolved because it's so incredibly adaptive for survival. And, and so what I was coming to terms with, the way my astrologer put it, is that with this transit of Uranus and Neptune, your personality emerged. You had been trying to live as if a thinking type and you reorganized your entire uh, personality along intuitive lines. Now, she didn't quite use the words thinking and intuition, but what she meant was something that really made it possible for me to appreciate Jung, as so many people did in that. Uh, I mean, it was a famous essay by Thomas Wolfe at the time called C.G. Jung Passes the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, <laughs> or someone quoting Thomas Wolfe. But that, uh, I mean, what am I saying? Not Thomas Wolfe. Uh, yeah. The Wolfe who wrote the, the, yeah, yeah. the uh, yeah. Montfort of the Vanities, that one. Yeah. Uh, so me, it's very hard to explain yeah. what it's like to come out of a West, an East Coast education which is entirely rational mm-hmm. and discover willy-nilly in the beginning of my Jungian analysis, which I went into in a very rational way to kind of work out certain issues in my life, and discover that the mind has at least as much irrational consciousness as it has rational consciousness, which I think is Jung's great contribution. Not the theory of the collective unconscious or the archetypes, but the idea that consciousness itself is not all rational. And it's not the unconscious that has this irrational consciousness, as even he first thought before he broke with Freud, but after he does his Red Book experience, that they discovered that the unconscious is filled with consciousness. Yes, that he knew, but that the conscious mind is at least as rational, as it, uh, irrational as it is rational. That saved my life because I've been trying so hard to discipline an intuitive mind and try to make it all make sense, you know, and, and I had these great grades and I could do mathematical proofs and so forth. But what was really guiding me always was some kind of, of God knows what it, that just zeroed in on the next interesting thing and, and that was going to actually serve my life. And I can say at age 80, it sure worked. But if I'd listened to anybody who tried to get me to follow a rational plan, I would have been, I would have been a goner. I would have been a goner. So I, I'm, I'm a testament to what can be accomplished with irrational consciousness, and it is a consciousness. It's not just acting out complexes in some kind of crazy, undisciplined way, as as I would have been taught it was. I mean, I had to fake it, and the only way I could fake it was to play it being an introverted thinking type, which was very Harvardian, and be this big intellectual, but that wasn't who I really was. Who I really was was someone who could always smell the coffee in the other room and go and have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let me step back for a moment the way I did when I did the little riff on your biography. Um, I'm four years younger than you. Um, mm. Turned 76 on October 22nd, mm. Libra with uh, Libra rising, a Leo moon. And um, I came out here in 72 to stay, uh, although I'd been out before and tasted the counterculture. Um, 
Before that, I was the hippie assistant professor at Yale. I did the course on the counterculture. I wrote an essay for government in opposition called Anarchism and the American Counterculture. And, you know, so I was the long-haired hippie assistant professor of psychology and politics. And then I came out here and left a tenure-track job at Yale to start a school for delinquent kids, and then I started Commonweal. So that's the kind of brief trajectory. You and I met maybe 30 years ago or something like that. George Hogel. It was, I can almost remember what yeah. it was about eight, in 85. Was I'm it 85? I'm sure it was 85, 85 yeah. or 86. And I remember coming to your office, which is the same office you're in now. 48 which is years. <laughs> small but charming <laughs> office. And I sat with you. I... I, I, I well, I remember that, but then I remember coming back because you had invited me to come speak at the Young Institute. Mm-hmm. And you and I were sitting together in your office. And, you know, I had five years of Freudian psychoanalysis when I was at Yale because I was thinking of becoming a lay psychoanalyst. And I don't think it did me any harm, but I'm not sure it did me a great deal of good, you know. Either. Yeah. But um, when I sat in your office uh, a year ago or so, I thought to myself, if I were looking for a psychoanalyst, you were the person I would seek out. And, it, and that's by way of preface for saying that my trajectory as somebody who studied psychology and politics through college and graduate school and taught psychology and politics, I grew up in the Freudian tradition and then um, in the developmental psychology of Eric Erickson, Jean Piaget, Lawrence Kohlberg, all the developmental people. And I was the recording secretary for the Wellfleet Psychohistorical mm-hmm. Conference with Eric Erickson, Philip Reeve, mm-hmm. Bob Lifton, mm-hmm. uh, Kai Erickson, that crew. Um, and so that's just a little bit of bringing myself into this. But what that is a preface to is that <clears throat> as I started to study Jung in depth, and then after Jung, I found my way to James Hillman Mm. who, of course, was the bad boy of the Jungian tradition and, and the founder, of, in many ways, of archetypal psychology in a certain school. Uh, and I spent a lot of time on Jung and then a lot of time on Hillman. And I've really come to the conclusion, which is the first question I want to test mm. with you. It's not, a, it's not something we can say objectively, but mm. for me... Jung is a greater figure than Freud. I know that is anathema, mm-hmm. uh, but I, and I know that it's a matter of taste and aesthetics, ultimately. Uh, and I realize that there are countries, France, for example, where Freud and the neo-Freudians are primary. Germany can barely touch Jung because of the history with Nazis and so on. It depends on all kinds of things. But for me, I, be, I, I know Freud needed to come first. But the understanding of human consciousness that Jung arrived at, what reminded me to say this was when you mentioned that Wolf said that Jung passed the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Or at least they quoted Wolf's phrase, yes. All right. But the point is that I have long thought that Jung was the mimetic uh, capsule that brought a whole body of 19th century 
European thought that surrounded Jung, but that we had no historic memory of, into the New Age. That he was the capsule carrier, the psychic carrier, uh, and that by exploring Jung, one then begins to understand the um, influences on Jung, which were enormous, going back to Goethe and, of course, going way back before that. So he brought a, a breadth of historic and literary reference that, to me, has a founding power in the New Age. So I'll just stop there and ask what your reflections, positive or negative, whether you'd be critical of it or not, of that perception of Jung's contribution. There's so much there. Well, first of all, they were both impossible. I mean, I don't think I could have liked either of them, actually. I mean, when I was really getting to know Jung, I, there was an awful lot that there, to not like but not usually the things other people didn't like, but believe me, it was plenty plenty obnoxious, which was there not to like. I mean, he played the genius at times. Um, I, I couldn't, I don't think I would have been, with my father problem, I would not have been able to tolerate either of these men. Uh, I, I think they were both dominating, uh, aggressive men, and they were, you used the word mimetic. Some people study René Girard, they were mimetic rivals. Yeah. And these are people imitating each other's desire. They both had the desire to be the next step after Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. Right, exactly. I mean, that was, there was that apostolic succession. And they both succeeded and failed at that, at that particular ambition. And, um, but Jung wanted to take Goethe's place. Too. But, you know, in a medic rivalry, then there always has to be a sacrifice. Right. Somebody has to be the scapegoat. So Freud did a great job of scapegoating Jung, yeah. and Jung did a great job of scapegoating Freud. Right. <laughs> and they're essential. They're essential. They're incredibly brave people. Yeah. But their mimetic desire, their conjunction, which took place during their lifetime and in their period of knowing each other, was the great conjunction of Neptune and Pluto. And there you had the desire. Pluto is this, they don't even call it a planet anymore, but that's a mistake. It has some, it's an enormous power that's like alchemy. It's a kind of purging or refining of the dross or some kind of tremendous, uh, even, a, even an alchemical uh, fire burning something that's to purify it. And uh, Neptune is this massive confuser of realizing this unconscious thing, but not knowing what to do about it. The same situation I found myself in, having to figure out what to do with this sensitivity to the unconscious. So they both were teasing the same problem, which is, what's the next reasonable step beyond reason? I mean, they were trying, they were in a double bind. Because if you, I mean, irrationalism was not an answer. And Jung rejected irrationalism whether it was in Nietzsche or somebody of his, who was a very lesser figure of his time, but very important, named Ludwig Klages, who did end up a Nazi, uh, which Jung absolutely did not. Um, irrationalism is sort of the last refuge of scoundrels. And, and so Freud wanted to make 
Jung, the apostle of irrationalism, and it's very suspicious. Jung was never an irrationalist, any more than he was uh, a Nazi, or at least consciously an anti-Semite. But he 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 himself was just as hard on irrationalism as Freud had been on him. But they both were looking for that next step. They both realized that you had to make room for an unconscious. You could not just have a conscious. And in that sense, um, Jung is Freud's true disciple, even whatever their personal quarrel was. He really, I, I once, I've written about this. There's a dream that Freud has in uh, uh, The Interpretation of Dreams, which is an interesting title because uh, did I say Jung? I meant to say Freud has in the interpretation of dreams that Freud Freud gives many of his dreams and he gives many associations but he never really interprets any of the dreams so that the interpretation of dreams does not take place in the interpretation of dreams so it's up to us to interpret Freud's dreams and I haven't hesitated of course and uh, so this amazing dream that he has sometime around 1898. We don't have a date of the dream, and we have what we have his associations, and I'm not going to take you everywhere with the dream that you can go, but... And the dream is of self-dissection. Hmm. Freud is a doctor operating on himself. Huh. Now, I think that is... A, and that's, he was, of course, in the midst of this self-analysis. Huh. And I think so. And so... He's, he's, he's working on himself and he's doing the operation. He's the patient and doing the operation. And he comes across this strange silver paper. It seems to be silver. It may be, it looks silver paper. It's actually tinfoil. It's Dennis, but it's, it looks silvery. And it's overlying the pelvic organs. And he looks at it sort of so curious. Doesn't know why it's there. He sets it aside. And now he's sort of kind of recovered from the operation, more or less, but he's still very shaky on his feet. And so he doesn't know quite how he's going to proceed from there. And then appears this tall man who is well-built and tall, and he's an alpine guide. And this man carries Freud the next step of the way, and they go over a sort of a crossing, some kind of bridge or something, and then even the tall man has run out of steam, and Freud realizes that they're not going to be able to finish the crossing, uh-huh. and it will be up to the children to finish the crossing. Uh-huh. And I think that's a precognitive dream about Freud and Jung. Yeah. And I think that silver foil, that's what Jung called Luna, the color of the silver, and it was over the pelvic organs. Freud was too good uh, and too meticulous an analyst not to discover the anima in that way, but not knowing what to do with it because it was part, it was a cultural product in the middle of the sexual area that he was so interested in studying in a biological way. Uh, that, and then he has to leave that aside. Then he, he can't. He doesn't quite have the, the 
under, the understanding, literally, the, the standing, and his legs can't quite hold him. So he needs Jung to carry the project a little further, but it's up to the rest of us to carry it. And that's where I see myself. I see myself as one of the children. I suppose I'm one of the grandchildren or great-grandchildren. It doesn't matter. I consider myself one of those who've come after, whose job is to recognize the enormous, in that dream I see enormous integrity of project. He, this is a man really thinking at the deepest level about he's doing really important work for the culture. I mean, we're so unself-reflective. In fact, right now, we're having a cultural catastrophe because of, of, of an enormous failure of uh, self-reflection. So you used the word integrity in, in yeah. one of your seminal books as, uh, as a... Uh, exploration of the archetype of integrity. Please say more about what your central thinking is on the archetype of integrity. Well, I put it in the preface. It was actually one of my patients found I may happen to confide in her that I was writing a book and, and what's it about and it's on integrity. Oh, that's when you take responsibility for what you do, she said. That's never been improved upon. I mean, it's a word that we believe that Cicero coined. He supposedly turned a lot of nouns in the Latin language. I want to stick with that for a moment. Integrity mm -hmm. is when you take responsibility for what you do. Yes. Integrity is when you take responsibility for what you do. That's an interesting description because... You know, for myself, I see myself as a radically imperfect human being, and therefore with some useful skills. That's my self-description, a radically imperfect human being with some useful skills. And I've never been able to embrace the concept of integrity for myself because I see myself as radically imperfect. Uh, but when in that language, uh, integrity is taking responsibility for what you do, I can, I can understand, which is important for me, that, that description of integrity. So th to me, integrity is always so wrapped up with moral codes and doing things according to the conventional moral codes of your time. But that, I just wanted to jump in there because it seemed to me very central that you saw that as something that can't be improved on. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful philosopher named James John Keeks, K E K E S. I may not be pronouncing mm -hmm. his, his name properly, but um, he has a marvelous book, if I remember the title correctly, called uh, something like "Individuality and Moral Tradition," something mm -hmm. like that. And in that, he does a wonderful job of distinguishing purity from integrity. Uh-huh. Um, and in integrity, in a Jungian sense, has to include the fact that we have a shadow. Yes. I had a lovely example of that from a, the first yoga teacher in the Bay Area. It was a man named Walt Baptiste. And mm -hmm. for a long time, the Baptiste Center was on Clement Street, and they had a restaurant called the Hungry Mouth Restaurant. I used to eat there. And and I did a bit of yoga there for a while in midlife. And Walt would talk when he guided a yoga class, and he would get us to pay attention to various parts of our body. And he said, now I want you to focus on, uh, 
want for you to focus on your heart. I want you to focus on the blood vessels around your heart. And be sure to focus on the plaques on your arteries because they're part of you too. Mm. That's a very different kind of yoga. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> that many of us have had where we're just sort of, I mean, I, I had wonderful experiences doing yoga that were really very important to me. But that, that sentence, that you made, and that to me is integrity. Well, I'm experiencing an actual opening right now in this conversation, which is why I would pick you as my analyst if I were looking for an analyst, because you're really saying that the Jungian concept of integrity must include the shadow. Must. And not only that, if we look at your work on the eightfold characterological type and all the um, material that I covered about the different dimensions of the self and the demonic and this, that, and the other. In that sense, integrity encompasses it all. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, but the idea that something in us is keeping score on ourselves. Yeah. You know, I mean, these days they their books like the body keeps the score and right now we're yeah. in a, we have a very strong victim psychology yeah. so all of us know that every insult that's ever happened to us is remembered right. well it's equally true that everything we do that doesn't help other people is remembered right. too and I'm interested in that part the part right. that's keeping score on my impact on others and, and I can know that and feel that if I let myself do so. I can't, con- I can't make myself perfect. And in right. fact, I, I should, and I have a perfectionistic tendency and I have to watch out for all this going up into the superego. So the word responsibility doesn't, for the most part, appear in my book except in that preface as someone else's comment because I don't want to be holding other people accountable and calling that integrity. To me, integrity is really a self-psychology where you accept that it's essential to have some moral compass in yourself, and, and that involves taking in the feedback you get from others. One of the things I learned from the I Ching is, is the line of, no one can know themselves. It's only through the impact of their actions that they can be known which I think is exactly what I'm talking about. And so to me, to me, feeling my way with that and finding people who are living that way too, that's as important to me as empathy. To me, integrity and empathy are the two values that are most important in psychotherapy. And so I have to recognize that just anything my patient brings to me is also going to reflect some aspect of what I've already done to my patient. So integrity and empathy are the two cornerstones of your work. I, yeah, and to build a capacity for both and to take, to take an ownership of my particular limitations in both areas, but also to enjoy the opportunity from either my dreams or from other people that I get in touch with, enough to hear from back, trust me enough to tell me what I've been and done, both for them and not for them, or against them even. That's so useful to me. Just a wonderful way to live. You just keep growing. You don't get there, but you're on a journey the rest of your whole life. 
You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Union Analyst John Beebe and host Michael Lerner. So you mentioned the I Ching, and of course this has been a passion of yours, and we were planning to throw the I Ching. Maybe we'll get there, but let's first talk about the I Ching. Sure. When did you come into the I Ching, and uh, what has it meant? As you look back on this life, what has the I Ching meant to your own sense of who you are? Well, I first held it in my hands in the Widener Library, or I guess the Lamont Library, which is where you did your studying it, it, in Harvard Yard. But uh, the, I held every book in my hands in Harvard Yard. That didn't mean yeah. I read it. Yeah. I, but I, I held there were the two volumes of the I Ching in those days. The Wilhelm version. The Wilhelm version, published in two volumes in 1950 with a preface by Jung. And I said, I'll get to this later. And uh, so I did. Where later came was in the more hippie-ish days of 1966 and 1967, one of my woman friends showed me how to use this book. And she said, it's a very trippy book. And uh, we immediately found when I, I learned how to consult it, and I was absolutely amazed. What did you discover? Well, the first thing people discover when they, when they do the I Ching is just how extraordinarily um, apropos it is to your state of mind at the time of, of... There were so many examples, but I'll give you one. I had a couple of friends, they happened to be uh, young ins who um, were married, and uh, they had... Uh, they were both doctors, and Nine months had gone by, and uh, the baby was due, and no sign of, I mean, I think the baby was definitely kicking and all, but there was no sign of going into labor. And they got anxious, and they thought, should we, these are the days of, you know, advanced medical technology, so should we induce pregnancy? Should we induce pregnancy? And you know, uh, what am I saying? <laughs> this is why, I, this is why I became a psychiatrist and not a, not a surgeon. They had already induced pregnancy. <laughs> they, did, they, they, they had figured out how to induce pregnancy. Their problem was <laughs> whether to induce labor. <laughs> I do that kind of thing all the time. But so, uh, trust me not, but keep on listening. The, uh, <laughs> so the... Uh, so they finally, why not consult the I Ching? So they did. And what do you think the I Ching said? Mm. Waiting. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that my friend met me. She said, it's a trippy book. And that was so helpful to them. And so they waited seven more days. And of course, a perfectly healthy baby was born, who I know very well now and is a wonderful person. And mm. thank God they didn't rush it. But mm -hmm. thank God they had an I Ching to tell them was two smarty pants to tell them what only the irrational knew, that it was not time to, to do anything, but it was time to hold something until it was ready to happen. And it's as simple as that. So on the basis of that, people who consult the I Ching frequently are just blown away by how readily it established you can, Do you consult it frequently? What? Do you consult it frequently? Uh, not as frequently, let's put it that way. Excuse me? Not as frequently as I once did. Uh -huh. There are a lot of reasons people use the I Ching and yeah. haven't used it 
like the father I left behind in China. You know, I've got this. I, I, that's, I, that was one of those many insights that happened on the sly. I was starting to use the I Ching a lot, and then I happened to take it before one of my analytic sessions, and there was a woman analyst uh, now. She's an analyst. I think she was, like myself, just in training then, and she saw me uh, with the I Ching. She said, oh, yeah, my patients, my patients use that. Yeah, they use it as a kind of father. Well, that was the insight, because... When my mother and I came back from China, that was essentially the end of my relationship with my father. Mm. And so I left a personal father back in China, but I got this archetypal father from China, and Mm. I used it to teach me how to live. So I used it much more than most people do, because I just asked it, like I would ask a consultant about every situation, and I needed so much guidance, because I really hadn't had that. I was really pretty much self-generated and... I needed so much to, I had so much to learn, so. How do the Chinese see the Qing right now and the culture right now? Well, remember that it was, the word Qing only means classic, and it was not necessarily always considered one of even the Confucian classics, although Confucius had spoken highly of it, and it was certainly in existence even 500 years before Confucius was yeah. born. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was known in history as the oracle or the, uh, it was a little bit like the Delphic oracle had been for Greece. It was the oracle of the uh, Zhou dynasty, Z-H-O-U dynasty, which took over from the very corrupt uh, Shang dynasty and was famous for... Um, what is called statecraft uh, in the literature on China. Statecraft is perhaps one of the things the Chinese study have studied the most, how one wisely guides affairs of state, and that gets extended to how do individuals uh, guide their interactions with other people. But the, the, the Zhou dynasty was extremely successful at ethical and non-corrupt governance, and the reason... They, people felt they could do it was that they were using this extraordinary oracle and trying to decide in each situation what to do. It's, it's very interesting. Um, uh, the Japanese government would not go to war until the eve of World War I, at least, without consulting. The last thing they did after having made the decision to go to war was consult the I Ching whether it was a wise move or not. And if the I Ching didn't agree, they wouldn't go forward. Now, obviously, the Japanese were not consulting the I Ching when they, went, when they started World War II with the, in, uh, on, the, on the eastern side. Mm. They didn't. And uh, so that idea that you do everything you can except take into account what you can't know and then ask yourself, what have I left out? See, that's how I look at it. I look at it as an exercise in integrity. You take yourself to as far as you can go and then you say, and then you ask a question. And the question, I think the best question to ask, many people have ideas about how, and I think the question's very important. I... I find myself disposed to act in the following way. 
what will the consequence of carrying out that mode of action be? And uh, what it will be the consequence to actually, for, and then, then, it will, then what will happen is that if you've really racked your brain and you, it's an honest question and you really have struggled with the issue enough to know what you want to do but don't know quite what the effect of it will be and want to have an advanced picture of what that might be, you will ask the I Ching the question. And here's where I think people have to, there's a learning curve here that has to do with our narcissism, to put it simply. You will usually get a synchronicity that you will see, my God, this thing seems to know, just, I don't know how it could, but it seems to know my problem because the answer I got mirrors the problem. And usually you don't get just one hexagram, but you get what's called a moving line, and this is a technique of using it, but the basic idea is you get one six-sided figure. The Chinese call it a gua. The first uh, major translator of the I Ching in the West called it hexagram, which means a figure composed of six lines. And uh, that gua or hexagram will shockingly, if, if you've asked the question with integrity, that is, you've really asked your real question, it will mirror your question in such a way that there's no possible way of missing that the book is in rapport with what you are. That's the astonishing ability this book has to kind of effect a synchronicity if there is an integrity to the question asked. That's one of the things that I've learned is that synchronicity follows integrity. I, another way of saying that for me, I agree with you completely, is that if you approach whatever encounter you are approaching with reverence, yes. the more reverence that you approach a person or a situation with, the more reverence comes back. So it's, it's like what you're saying. Reverence has resonance, yes. Yeah. You just have said yeah. that beautifully. And this is like that. This is like that. It's a, and it's just as when I had decided that I wanted to be a psychiatrist and I molded over and I finally decided to speak to Nancy Hale, um, there, there I got so much synchronicity because I already had so much integrity in asking the question. I wasn't just lightly blabbing it around. I was really holding it, and, and it was a decision I'd come to, but I also wanted to to share it. I, I, even the idea of sharing it we had integrity. For, I'm, I'm pleased with the, my young self for having that. Oh, and then I got a magnificent synchronicity as a result. And I think that her mirroring of what I... What I so so that kind of synchronicity can happen alone in a consultation with the I Ching, but there's where our narcissism comes in. Oh, aren't I wonderful? And and you know, oh my goodness, I have a synchronicity. And oh yes, I got this this line, and it ma it just matches completely. I've had so many people come into my office who, knowing because I keep a copy of the I Ching in my office that I like the I Ching, will bring in their I Ching and they'll tell me what they got in the first hexagram. And I say, oh yes, what did it change to? Oh, I don't remember. Because they're so in love with the fact that the universe mirrored them. It's almost like mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the most wonderful? So you asked a great question. I'm giving you a great answer. Aren't you wonderful? And I said, well, 
You know, yes, Virginia, there is synchronicity, you know. There is a Santa Claus, yeah, okay. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's, not the, that's not what we should be focusing on. What you really want to focus on when you get, and I learned this from my own analyst, Dr. Henderson, is that the first hexagram that you get is where you are now. And you want to be sure you know where you are. And if you haven't asked the right question or the chain, as sometimes does, answers the question you should have asked, it kind of reorganizes you enough to state where you are now. But then it changes. And this is what we don't know. But it seems to know that in a human situation that's like this, if you take this attitude and do this, the situation will go in this direction. And it will end up as that. And then you really have to ask yourself, do I want that to happen? And that's where you have to decide for yourself whether the outcome of the con- that you're being told will emerge from what you are now thinking of doing with what you have now, whether that's to your taste or not. And there you really have a chance to develop what I would call your moral taste. Well, beautiful. Moral taste. And that is I what I think that. I've been training for so many I years. I love that. Moral taste. <laughs> so moral taste is an aesthetic concept. I think that's right. And yeah. I think that's very In other words, instead me. of being judgmental, it's aesthetic. That's right. Yeah. But, so there's a question that I actually asked you the last time I was in your office with you, which I think was about three years ago. Um, it was about the I Ching and... and uh, we also talked about James Hillman and archetypal mm. psychology, but I want to come back to it because I don't remember your answer exactly. Um, and that is, I have a tendency to see astrology, the I Ching, the Tarot, uh, Jungian psychology, archetypal psychology as different forms of different archetypal psychologies. The Enneagram, I would add. In other words, it seems to me, it seems to me that, so this, this comes back to your point about the I Ching, you throw it and it feels so true. Mm. You consult your astrology reading and it feels so true. Mm. For me, because I'm into Enneagram, you figure out your Enneagram and it feels so true. Mm. Uh, you have a tarot reading, and it feels so true. Mm. You do your psychological types Jungian thing, it feels so true. Mm. So the question I've been asking myself for quite some time is that how is it that these archetypal systems that are so varied in origin and theory or whatever uh, all have that sense of profound, authentic guidance when we come to them with reverence. And how can we understand that such different systems give us such reverential responses when we approach them with reverence? Well, just as not all novels are great novels, not, not all symbol system oracular machines are are equally great right you know i mean i think you know jane austen's pride and prejudice is is wonderful but i'm not so sure jane austen and the vampires is is so good you know that comes out later what i guess i'm 
I think we have to be careful which ones we use. I've used them all um, that you've mentioned, except the Enneagram in any detail, although I've had people in my practice who've been very strong on that mm-hmm. Enneagram. And for me, there has to be there has to be an empirical I have to have an empirical sense that what I'm learning from this particular thing is um, actually of some value. Um, And it's the same problem as with the problem of interpreting dreams, as I just interpreted a dream of Freud's in a precognitive way. And I think I convinced most of you that I was reading it right. But, but of course, beauty can be in the eye of the beholder. I mean, it gets into problems of truth and so forth. But certain things uh, speak to me in a very powerful way. And maybe if I just gave you an example. Like everybody else, I was utterly dismayed the night after the election in 2016 although I knew as soon as the turnout in Philadelphia was so, so low that it was going to be a real problem. And I had stayed up late at night and seen Trump talk in Detroit So, I, and uh, after Hillary had gone to bed, and I was amazed by how his, he had made a last-minute intuitive decision to go to Michigan, and he did carry it by 11,000 votes or so. So anyway, I, I had to ask the I Ching Gee, you know, kind of immediate. I mean, the night after the this is the night after the election. So I got the first hexagram was twenty five. Innocence, the unexpected, and I got this moving line. Was the only moving line in the hexagram. Undeserved misfortune. The cow that was tethered by someone is the wanderer's gain, the citizen's loss. Wow. That was the answer. Could you say it again? Undeserved misfortune. This is hexagram 25. That's the gua, 25. Line that's Yao, Yao three, six in the third place. That's the six is a, a numerical method of getting this kind of answer. Undeserved misfortune. The cow that was tethered by someone is the wanderer's gain, the citizen's loss. Now, I prefer the Wilhelm to all of the other translations for various reasons. I have a close friend who's a student of Wilhelm was studying in London, writing, who's been in Wilhelm's archives. Wilhelm's understanding of this book and of Chinese culture is astonishing. Here's what he says. Sometimes undeserved misfortune befalls a person at the hands of another. As, for instance, when someone passes by and takes a tethered cow along with him. His gain is the owner's loss. In all transactions, no matter how innocent, we must accommodate ourselves to the demands of the time. Otherwise, unexpected misfortune overtakes us. 
I'm afraid Hillary thought she had it wrapped up. And she left the cow, the feminine principle, the milk-giving thing, the, the positive mother for the culture, tethered, and the wanderer came and took it. Okay, that, the synchronicity was utterly clear to me. That, I don't get anything as good, although I have used astrology and tarot, and I've gotten amazing things there. You don't get anything but as in, good. But this is, this is very interesting. It also links the synchronicity also to the psychology and the moral. So I'm just telling you why I happen to like this book. I'm not saying that that's the only uh, source. But I want to tell you where it goes to. Yeah, go. go, go so so the, the point I was interested in, because I'm past the point of being surprised by this book's ap- ap- being apropos, mm-hmm. at least when I use it when I should, and uh, is that what it led to is a hexagram sometimes called, and this is Wilhelm's fellowship with men, but it's actually about the quality of the connection between men and meaning, this again is a 1950 translation, so fellowship with people. In other words, what is, the, what is now going to be the quality of communal interaction? You could almost call it the communal the communal interactional field you could, would be a better way to say, name this hexagram than, than fellowship with men. He hides weapons in the thicket. He climbs the high hill in front of it. For three years, he does not rise up. So there's a strange hiding weapons in the thicket. So here, fellowship has changed about to mistrust. Each person distrusts the other, plans a secret ambush, and seeks to spy on his fellow person from afar. We are dealing with an obstinate opponent whom we cannot come at by this method. Obstacles standing in the way of fellowship with others are shown here. One has mental reservations for one's own part and seeks to take his opponent by surprise. This very fact makes one mistrustful, suspecting the same wiles in his opponent and trying to ferret them out. The result is that one departs further and further from true fellowship. The longer this goes on, the more alienated one becomes. Mm -hmm. So I took that as a prediction for what we would be up against in this administration. And I noted that it said, for three years, and I said, that at the end of the three years, the spell is going to start to break. The spell is going to start to break. When we talked about this at the Jung Institute, you had followed this to another text of a reference, didn't you, to this reading, which you found very extraordinary. Am I remembering that correctly? Because I thought you read... I read... I found it... I found it... There's a, there's a remarkable teaching, but I don't have it yeah. with, my, with me from a man in Holland. But yes, he, he, he has... He has uh, he has one, a nice set of lines about this. I could probably find them. No, no, but it, the point right is now. it went even deeper when you went even further into Right, it. and yeah. you, you always will. But I think this will tell enough yeah. of... Now, to me, what speaks to me about this, that is the clearest definition of what we've just been through that I have been able to find. And I read 
every op-ed piece and every opinion piece mm-hmm. known to man mm-hmm. and woman at this point. I mean, it's, uh, unfortunately, there still are more men than women, and the men often, uh, sometimes they're appallingly stupid, sometimes they're very smart, but none of them are as smart as that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Your book, Energies and Patterns in Psychological Type, The Reservoir of Consciousness, one of the things that has come to strike me most powerfully about archetypal psychology is the independence and autonomous energetic function of these different archetypes that live within us, some people would say live through us, over which we have very little control. When you write about energies and patterns in psychological type, the reservoir of consciousness, that clearly draws on, I think clearly draws on, your uh, work on uh, the eightfold, uh, the eight functional model. So could you talk a little bit, because I think this has been a major contribution of yours, about your work on the eight function model, which derives from Jung, and your understanding of these extraordinary autonomous energies in the different archetypes that live in us and perhaps in some way live through us? Well, let me say that this book was published in late 2016, Mm -hmm. uh, actually before the election, uh, but has on its flyleaf a 2017 uh, publishing date. They always do that. They, They they usually put the date of the next full year that it will be out because it doesn't always reach bookstores and so forth till then. Um, I'd been working on psychological types as a concept for a very long time and because it was as early as my first years as a Jungian and being very perplexed as to whether I was an introvert or an extrovert and then learning thank heaven that one can be both, that different parts of us are introverted and different parts are extroverted. But first it was very confusing for me. So let's just say that I began thinking about psychological types in a very strong way around 1970 and realized I didn't know anything about it really around 1974 and then began to turn to my dreams to begin to make sense of the types, to see what types of consciousness actually showed up in my dreams rather than try to do it the other way, which is to just type people and people I know, but actually to see the parts of myself as, as representing different types of consciousness. And I got to the point that I could actually uh, write about this uh, somewhere around I guess my first paper on it was written about 1983. But, it, but then I, I spent the next, then about five years later, I had this model that I'd had that kind of, at least for myself, organized where different types of consciousness are in me. I hope this is all clear, that many people, because they know the MBTI, which is the most popular paper and pencil test now of personality in the world, um, um, and it's, these days, more people know the terms of typology, extrovert, introvert, thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition, than can tell you what ego, id, and superego mean. And that isn't what it used to be, but it's the way it is now. And uh, 
that's because of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which so many people have taken. But all of these, the, the test is trying to get what they call types of personality, and they're trying to say that we all human beings end up as one of 16 types of personality, and they have that model. I'm more interested in what I think was Jung's original intent, and he says it in the preface to the Argentine edition of uh, Psychological Types, a preface he wrote in 1935, uh, which is about 15 years after he actually published Psychological Types. Uh, he says that it's a mistake to think that I created this system to type people. What I was trying to get at was to make some sense of the welter of empirical material that a working psychotherapist meets in the course of, of, of treatment where so many different things and issues come up and that I'm trying to get at so what he's trying to get at were the different types of consciousness human beings can resource yeah. to solve the problems they have in living yeah. and the degree of, to which those individual consciousnesses in them are either so poorly developed they couldn't possibly solve certain problems. Like if you don't have any extroverted feeling, you're not going to be able to handle certain kinds of feeling communications. And if you don't have any ability to define things at all for yourself, you can't think to that level, you're going to be awfully clueless and certainly not able to explain yourself clearly to other people and so forth and so on. So Jung was interested in the status of different consciousnesses within the self, almost like it depends on how, how competitive you are in your psychology, but sometimes I think of them as eight racehorses, you know. But, but Say again. Eight racehorses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which, which one is going to win the race or mm -hmm. which one is able to even make the circuit uh, around the, the field? It doesn't have to be looked at that way. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Jungian analyst John Beebe and host Michael Lerner. So how did your work on types as one of the children of the Jungian uh, journey, how did your work on types advance or further Jung's work on types? Well, the trouble is the number of functions you put together in your model. The original Jung, up until 1912, for sure, maybe as late as 1915 or 1916, had only two types of people. And, it was, and he, had, he had all of his psychology sort of bound up in this. It came out of those very early experiments he did. The psychiatrist when he was in doing Central Europe, who was Eugene Bloiler, who named schizophrenia most at the Berkholsley Hospital. And there was Jung wearing a white coat, uh, taking word association test responses from patients. And he noticed that in addition to the evidence that he was able to assemble for unconscious complexes causing people to block or perseverate or have a very idiosyncratic response to a particular word. Uh, and in that way, he could say, aha, there's, a, there's an indicator of a complex. He also noted that people approached the testing situation in extremely different ways. There'd be one man who, I mean, Jung himself was pretty military back then. He would be sitting there in his white coat with it, looking at the... But the, it would usually be a man who'd sit up, he'd try to sit at attention and 
the word would be given to him, and then he'd try not to move a muscle except to say the first word that came to his mind so that the doctor would get the most accurate association. Uh, and then there would be the person who would come in, and it was usually a woman, and say, oh, you must be a poor man, you in this hot room having to would sit with your watch and take our associations all day. But, oh, look at that lovely salmon color of the test. That must reassure you, you know. Mm -hmm. And so Jung thought there are two types of people. One is the kind of objective type who's just got to be as scientific as possible. And the other, he didn't know what to call it. He called it the woman the value predicative type. Everything is predicated on value. I mean, that's as far as the young Jung was from feeling in those days. But, but those were his first two types. One is an introvert, trying to get it right, trying to be as objective as possible. And the other is this... Um, very subjective, somewhat histrionic, uh, emphasis on relationship person. And that eventually became what he called the feeling type. She, so you had two types. And one was an introvert, one was an extrovert. One was usually a man, one was usually a woman. One was usually thinking and one was usually feeling. And so that, so that he had it all mixed up. That, that it, the, it was the introverted thinking masculine and the extroverted feeling feminine. And usually he even had it male and female. Later, all those categories got unpacked, and he had other he, he, in his psychology. That's where he started two types of consciousness. Gradually and painfully, he realized how restrictive that was, and it, he tried to use that model to talk to his best friend, who was an extrovert at that time. And they had this correspondence, and they got nowhere trying to explain each other to each other. And that's all they got out of it, was that the two types of personality can't, can't explain themselves. But to make it worse, I edited that correspondence. Each of the, There was Jung the introvert trying to be an extroverted thinking type, and there was this other man who was an extroverted intuitive trying to... I mean, it was just unbelievable. They were, all, they were both pretending to be the opposite of what they were. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a complete, it's a hilarious correspondence of misunderstanding, and they decided not to publish it. But Jung got the point. The two-function model wasn't enough. But it really wasn't until he broke with Freud and had this, this astonishing set of visions and images that he got from connecting with parts of himself in dialogue, in active imagination, which are now recorded in the Red Book, that he really got the idea of how many personalities we all have within us, and how each has its own way of being. And after that, he was able to write a much more interesting book than he had about types before, and that was the book Psychological Types. And there he does name the eight functions of consciousness, uh, but he says that we only get to have four of them, each of us. We only get four of them. And the other four will be very undeveloped in the unconscious, and he won't say too much about what's about them. So that he ended up from going from a two-function model to a four-function model. God knows it was a help that it was, he'd added in irrational functions, so he added in intuition and sensation, which are irrational in the sense of being non-rational, in the sense of being things that are just given to us. Like the way, if you look at it, I look at your green, that green, of, before I even know what to use the word green, that just is given to me, it's, it just comes at me. And, that, and it's my sensation picks it up or my intuition selects you to, to, to pick it up. So those irrational functions 
function to get me to, to organize that long before I can say the name of the garment you're wearing or the name of the color, uh, which would be more a thinking thing, or to even tell you what, whether I love it as I actually do or whether I don't like it as I probably wouldn't say unless this were Germany where that's socially acceptable. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, we, so we, we, we have feeling and we have thinking as rational functions and we have sensation and intuition as irrational functions. But Jung only gave us four functions, and three had to be more or less the ego functions, and then the fourth function would be the inferior function, and that was supposed to carry the whole relation to the unconscious. Well, I'm one of those who felt that we might as well not stay with even that as too narrow a model, and that we need to ask ourselves about all eight functions uh -huh. and admit that they're all functioning and to some degree conscious. Yes, some are more developed than others, and the ones that are more developed are more conscious, and the ones that are less developed are more unconscious or have further work in progress, and our dreams will reflect the work we need to do on those functions. But even the well-developed functions have aspects of themselves in the unconscious. So it's better to think of an eight-function model. You get more of a chance to cover the waterfront. And so I got very interested in that. And I got interested in that as a way of checking out where am I when I'm in a situation and where am I not? And I can, I'm sure some of you have felt where I'm not. And uh, that's my work in progress, to be, make myself aware of that because it can be exhausting to just think and talk. There are other things, pictures, sensation, other things that I don't always do as well as others. You've done a lot of work using American films to understand... Um, um, God, you heard the, me well the there, because that's exactly where film comes in. I use that to, to compensate for my lack of extroverted sensation. I show the movies. Say more about your work with films. Well, film is just such a natural psychological medium, and it just shows, you know, it just shows all of these... Fun I mean, I, I have lectures in which I've illustrated all of these functions. I, I, the hard ones to recognize are the, are the, are the uh, introverted functions of consciousness because they happen on such an introverted level that while they're happening, you don't even necessarily know they're happening. The most famous of that is introverted feeling. You know, uh, the poet Rilke was pretty famous for his introverted feeling. He knew it, too. He, was the, he had known Freud, and he had known Luandres Salome, who was associated with Nietzsche before he was associate, she was associated with Rilke, and she eventually became a Freudian psychoanalyst. And so late in his life... In the, there was yet another woman that he was getting close to, and he's writing her love letters, and he and he writes her, um, I love is, you, who, but of who course, is writing it's, uh, Rilke, Rilke to his latest yes. female love. Yeah. I love you, but of course it's none of your business. But of course what? It's none of your business. <laughs> the classic introverted, in other words, the of, I love the of course, because it shows how, how he was one of the first artists to be conscious in the post-psychoanalytic sense, right. and that's kind of a wonderful example of that. This isn't the woman, didn't, didn't he write love letters to God, to her, isn't that? 
I'm not sure which woman it is because I don't. I'm not a okay. Rilke's guy. There are people who know this better yeah. than I. Yeah. I know he wrote that letter, and I've actually yeah. read it. Yeah. But it, this business of "I love you, but it's none of your business" is usually, the, of course, isn't there. I have couples in my office where the wife is saying, "You never tell me what you feel. I know I don't even feel that you care about me at all." And, of course, I'm trained in looking at movies, you know, and I'm looking at his face, and his face is like something out of silent film. He's just, there. it's just so... And I said, I'm sorry, but I can see in his face how profoundly sad he is that you feel that way. The man starts, tears start pouring down his eyes. And she says, well, you can get feeling out of him, but I can't, you know. Well, you see, I, the problem is I can recognize the introverted feeling. And because she can't read it and she needs extroverted feeling and she thinks that's the only kind of feeling there is, he has to be the blue meanie. She has to be the person who's just going out of her head. And God knows he has work to do to use extroverted feeling and she has work to do to recognize introverted feeling. I, I, if I've seen that problem, it doesn't have to be as gendered as I put it. I've, I've seen I've, I've seen it a hundred times. It happens all the time. And it happens with all the functions. There isn't one that somebody doesn't have something you think they should have and someone does have something you wish they didn't have. I mean, our dislike of each other, which is something Schopenhauer wrote about, is acted out in the way we react to each other's typology. Most of us can't stand each other at first glance because they're not, we're not type compatible. Do you remember the beautiful line from Rilke? about love as two solitudes that acknowledge, protect, and salute each other. Yes, but that's a lovely introverted model, and, right. and that same, that, he'd be in couple therapy if, <laughs> if he tried to make that his recipe for relationship. <laughs> well, it's an interesting, so the point is, yeah. so I used the film, just to this yeah. last yeah. piece, and I don't want to take the whole time on yeah. this, but, so, where film has been so helpful is it's enabled me to show people quickly what I do every day that involves lots of confidential and lots of slow stuff that I can't describe. So I got the idea a few years ago that maybe I could finally teach people what the introverted functions are doing if I use silent film because it's the, the talkies are largely... Mm -hmm. the, the ex, you know, the Betty Davis, the mm -hmm. Joan Crawford, Judy Garland. I mean, they, those are all Barbara Stanwyck. They, those are all extroverted presentations mm -hmm. that are wonderful to watch. But how do how do how do how do the introverted functions present themselves? So, I thought to myself, well, that might work if I use silent film comedians because I thought mm -hmm. we already have two who I know the types of, and the the first type, the first one would be, I've always known Charles Chaplin was yeah. introverted intuitive. It was. Introverted intuitive. Yeah. It was the classic introverted intuitive. In fact, that what makes the, the little tramp so yeah. moving is how poor his sensation is, how inferior his sensation is, like when he cooks the shoes and eats them, you know. That, all of those wonderful things. And so that was easy. And then I also knew the most perfect introverted sensation type in film was Buster Keaton. Uh, there's a very famous thing that Buster directed his own films, and there's a 
a thing, a marvelous bit where he, where he's, as you may have seen it, where he's putting up a house and he's nailing it in place as a, as, with great precision, but something has gone wrong at some level so that the entire facade of the house falls down on him. Well, Buster did that in one take, and he had carefully measured his, his, his outline, his silhouette, and so forth. So when the house fell down on him, it completely missed his body, and he was so positioned so perfectly that he could pull that gag off. It's, it's incredible to watch to this day. And so I knew I had these two different, and he also had that poker face, which is classic for introverted sensation, that great precision of movements that he has. Um, uh, so and it stayed with him his whole life. It was late in his life in 1948, he, in 49, he appeared in this in a movie called *In the Good Old Summertime* that starred Judy Garland and Van Johnson, and he played a uh, a particular man who was supposed to be awkward. And there's a certain moment in which he's trying to deliver uh, a musical instrument to a stage, and he stumbles. And he does the most perfect backward Pratt fall you have ever seen in film. And the, of course, he falls right on the bass viol and so forth. But it's so perfect. So he was perfect. So I had these two, introverted intuition, introverted sensation. Those are two of the eight types of consciousness. I had those. And I thought, I've got to see if they're... So I've sort of been... been I know enough film that I, I, I bethought myself of Harold Lloyd... And Harold Lloyd was the first comedian to wear glasses. They, Woody Allen claims he did not copy that from Harold Lloyd, but I would be surprised if he if he didn't. He plays a he's, he he was even wearing a a shirt that had a T on it in this as the freshman, and he has this idea that he, he he's sort of like a young James Hillman. He has this idea that he's going to live by and and uh, what he's going to be at college and. He models himself on a hero that he thinks, and he does a little jig every time he meets someone he thinks it's going to work. It's hilarious about a man who has no feeling, who thinks he can think his way by recipe to feeling and fault. And that's very funny. He gives wonderful, wonderful stuff. So I had introverted thinking. At that point, I said, oh, please, God, please. The great film critic before Pauline Kael was James Agee. And, in the, and he had done an article on the, on the silent film comedians that I had read as a little boy of 10 in Life magazine. And the four great film comedians were um, Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, and one that most people have forgotten now, Harry Langdon, who starred in Frank Capra's first film. Wonderful screen comedian. And... Uh, I said, please let this be true. And I put on Harry Langdon, and sure enough, he was as introverted feeling as the other three were then. And so I had the four introverted types, and I had a lecture. I, had, I could show the four introverted functions so I could actually tell people, this is introverted thinking. This is what it does. They're acting it out in pantomime. They're acting it out in this silent film meeting. But they're with their acting out, are a conscious process that by itself looks very weird, but actually has an internal logic all of its own. And I could show the four consciousnesses. And then after them, I could show my ladies. I could show Stanwyck and Crawford and Garland and Davis and get that 
Ethnic. You, you, you kind of light up when you talk about the film. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Such joy. <laughs> because it bring it makes it. But this is what Jung gave us. You know, that's this makes the psyche real. It, 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 what he's talking about are realities. They're not theories. They're not categories that he just made up from his head. They're realities. You've been doing uh, Jungian psychoanalysis with people for what? About fifty years. Did you start when you were 30 or so? I had my first one-to-one with a patient when I was 17, working as a volunteer in a mental hospital. I had an autistic boy I met once a week. All right. Robert Coles was our advisor in those days. Yes. I mean, that takes us back a few weeks. Wow. But uh, I started doing psychotherapy um, after medical school the first year as an intern. When was that? I was 26 years old, 1965. So I have been doing what would be nowadays considered individual psychotherapy since 1965. Which is, help me somebody. 54 years. 54 years, okay. And I've been in that office for 48 years. Yeah. So here's what I'd like to ask you as the kind of the final piece of our exploration. Then we'll take a few questions, then we'll do a close together. Okay. Um, in terms of your own intellectual, spiritual journey, whatever we want to call it, um, what has these 54 years of doing depth analytic work with people caused you to discover about your, about your own being? In other words, what, what, what have you learned about yourself um, from a life immersed in this work? Well, let's just take something that happened in the middle of it all, and, and that I think has stayed as the sort of lightning, light, the light on, on me, if you want that. I had this enormous problem with my extroverted thinking type father who really could not see the point of an extroverted intuitive son. I had an easier time with my introverted intuitive mother who loved my intuition, except when I took it into the world away from her. And then we had a tremendous battle over that as to whether I had the right to live my intuition apart from her, which I did have to win that fight. But uh, my parents were both very difficult for me, and I used to stumble over the word patient. I'd often say parent, and I'd often say patient and parent. I felt like my parents were my patients. But... The danger with that was to think that it was all coming from me, and I think there's an inflation within this. I am a self-made person, but I'm not. But none of it. But I'm also the work of many, many hands, and I got a lot of help along the way. But very early in the game, and not long after I had decided to become a doctor, I had a visit. I was um, an undergraduate at Harvard, and this young man looked me up, who was maybe my age, just a little bit older, and he, um, he told me he wanted to meet me because my grandmother, uh, my father's mother, my father was born in Wichita, Kansas in 1915, and his mother was very bright and taught at a little college, Fairmont College. She taught uh, Greek and Latin. And um, uh, so that 
school later became Wichita Municipal University, which my father attended, and then eventually Wichita State University. And so when it was Wichita State University, I think, uh, this fellow had been my grandmother's um, student. And he had had a, he said that she was by far his favorite teacher. He had actually come to live with her for a while in her house. And she, uh, so I wrote her after meeting him and he told me how much she had meant to him. I wrote her after and she said, oh, he, his, uh, <laughs> he had a terrible time at home. His father chased him around the kitchen table with a butcher knife. And uh, so, uh, yeah, she had taken him in. But what meant the most to him was that she had written, and I don't remember whether it was in Latin, or, but I suspect it may even have been in Greek. She'd written a line um, from actually the New Testament, uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, but as, and you can find it there, but as he remembered it, is that she had written, we do not come here to be served, but rather to serve. Mm-hmm. And that he felt she lived that. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point. And that, for me, has been the whole point. Yeah. I didn't value that side of my family at first for a variety of reasons. They seemed just too Midwestern for me, mm-hmm. too sensation-oriented and too thinking-oriented. But there was a dream that I had that I would tell you because we haven't mentioned dreams but dreams are very important and it was a, it was a dream in which uh, I saw my grandmother carrying an enormous snake and I, the dream thought was the dream thought that accompanied my she's more important than I thought she carries the snake and I suddenly realized that my, if you think of the snake, there's so many ways to think of the snake, but if you think the snake is the, the, whole, the whole unconscious, which she had had to carry as a woman, her, my, unfortunately, grandfather to abandoned the family when she had three children, and so she had to support them and through the Depression. And so uh, she had actually, in real life, had a masochistic load. I mean, she really had a, she really carried the family. But she was also carrying the unconscious value that turned out to be very important to me. And when, when I thought about that dream, and then I thought about what that man had told me, I realized that that was also mine. I, I, I was here to serve and not to be served. And I, much as I have at times felt the load, it's, it's sort of what I do. And, the, and you know, and it works. I, it, it, it works if I accept it. And it seems like that's been very important to me to learn as an analyst that you have to accept the transference you get. You can't choose how people will see you or relate to you. You have very little choice past a certain point, even over the patient you get, and you you have to, and you can't have people be the way you want them to be. They are the way they are, and they're going to stay the way they are. And no one is going to change until they're accept, accepted exactly as they are. 
including me, of course. And um, so where does that all lead me? Aside from the life of service, which I was able to accept first as a, I just, it just seems like it, it actually, it's, it's funny. If you accept what's yours to accept or what the Greeks call your portion, there's an enormous freedom in that, oddly enough. Whereas if you're trying to get it off you, there's no freedom in that. So that's one thing. The other is that I, I felt when I turned 75, I had the right to a sententious opinion. And so I, I said, well, okay, life is a come-as-you-are party. You, you can try to dress up for it, but it isn't going to work. You're going to have to do it just the way you are. And we, have, we just are who we are. We have to take each other as we are. And the interesting thing is that if you, again, accept that limitation, it becomes a tremendous space of freedom to learn so much. And I, I, I have more energy for what I'm doing now than I had when I chose this field at 19. I'm more motivated to do what I do every day. So what I've decided to tell my patients is, look, I do not want to sit, I don't want to sit here with you wondering when is he going to tell me he's going to retire. I will tell you every five years where I see, knowing I can't forecast accurately, but I will tell you that for the next five years, I just turned 80, I see myself as being in this office doing this work. Now, we'll see if that comes true or not, but when I'm 85, I'll give you another reading if you're around. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Jungian analyst John Beebe and host Michael Lerner. And That's you, where... remind, you remind me when we were sitting in your office and we were talking about a mutual colleague, a Jungian analyst, who had died, and you nodded and you said he died. I forget what age he was, but you said that was young for a Jungian analyst. Yes. <laughs> Well, my role model, of course, the man who helped me the most, my third Jungian analyst, Joseph Henderson, who I was with for about almost 25 years, uh, started practicing at age 36 Mm -hmm. and did not retire until he was 102, 66 years later. And uh, he died at 104, and he was just wonderful throughout the years. From your lips to God's ears, I hope that for both of us. (laughs) Well, it's not uh, how long. It's not how long we have. It's what we do with the... No, I know that, but I'd like to be around for as long as I can work this out. So, um, (laughs) yeah, let me open it up uh, to hopefully brief questions so that we have time for uh, a few answers, and then we'll do a close together. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. I'm glad you mentioned Dr. Henderson. What must have been a great person fit for you? Yes. And have you written anything about his whole effect upon your... I've talked about it and here and there. I don't think I have written as something that, that I can just refer you to. Right. But I can tell you a quick story that he had... He had the best way of understanding the psychological types of anybody, actually, and it was this way. He had a scroll that he picked up somewhere along the way. I don't think he ever went to China, but it was a a Chinese scroll that he had in his office. And it was one of those wonderful mountain landscapes where the landscape is everything and the majesty of the environment versus the smallness of the individual is probably pointed out, so that it takes forever to see in the middle of it, oh my goodness, on this path, 
why that's a person walking along. They're sort of vaguely oriented toward a tea house. And then if you look a little further in the picture, and you, there's another person not too far from them. Well, that would be the first two of the psychological functions, the ones that the MBTI types, the dominant and the auxiliary function, making their way up the mountain fairly far along and near the tea house. You look forever and way down on the, sort of further down the road is a third figure. They're all men, I think, in this picture, but they're the third figure. And uh, uh, wow, that's really amazing. And then if you really look way off the path, wandered off somewhere, way at the bottom of the thing, is a fourth person. Hmm. And those, for Joe Henderson, were the four functions. The first two that are fairly near where the nourishment is and the, up the mountain, fairly far along. One straggling along and one that's gone off wandering by itself. It, it, so they're all there. They're all people. They're all consciousnesses. But some are more on the path and some are, one is far off. So he had taken the four function model and then done, done a beautiful thing with it. And I've found that to be really true. Like, as long as I've worked on myself, my sensation function just goes wandering off. That's beautiful. It reminds me, I think it's a James Hillman story uh, about how each of us is a boarding house and how <laughs> some members of the boarding house come out by day and play by the rules. Others come out by night and play by a completely different set of rules. And then there are those that never come out of their rooms at all. That's, it. that's <laughs> so, sort of like... That's and right, when that's I talk cool. about that when I talk about a marriage, that when two people get together or a partnership, uh, you know, that we present first the day figures that come out and play by the rules. And then we realize we've each got a whole boarding house. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting process. Other questions or comments? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much. What a remarkable and extraordinary experience this has been. I'm definitely going to get your book or books. Well, that's good. <laughs> there, uh, there is a new book out called Emperor of the Seas or Emperors of the Sea, and it's about sharks and it's about the ocean. Ooh. It's just come out recently, and there is a whole um, chapter of, of, of a thesis of the author about the movie Jaws. Oh, my God. And in this book... Uh, he explains how Jaws, the film, unleashed uh, a complete carnage on the natural environment and certainly the seas. And he has some interesting data in there about uh, shark destruction, uh, which, of course, the Chinese are very much involved with, and, um, and about how it really accelerated after this film. Oh, dear. And there... You know, there's film. There's a new film, or recently film. It's it's called uh, uh, Fil Not Filthy, Crazy Rich Asians, for example. Oh yes. And so I'm kind of curious to bring it back to film. Are there films that you would put in that same category that actually were just complete game changers socially? That that uh, you mentioned about like the transition from silence to talking. But I'd be curious if if you maybe thought there was a film that was that dangerous, so to speak, that it, it, it really affected the narrative of the way we understand the world. Thank you, by the way. It's a really beautiful question. Thank you. How about the graduate plastics? <laughs> well, I think the, the uh, yeah. uh, films are like dreams. If you don't understand them, 
you can act them out in the most destructive way. And I think I've seen so many people misunderstand a dream. Um, Jaws really is one of the most upsetting experiences I've had. In one my of the life. most what? One of the most upsetting film watching yeah. experiences I have had in my life. Yeah. And I mean, I had nightmares for several weeks after seeing Jaws. I mean, the the, the somehow that shark eating the girl who's saying, you know, uh, that really hurts, you know. I mean, I bet it just goes on. It's terribly upsetting. And I thought about that film a lot, and I thought about the time at which it was, in which it was, and I finally realized, I finally decided, rightly or wrongly, that that film was an allegory about Nixon and Watergate and what it meant to us as a country, what that did to us. Um, and unfortunately, I felt that Watergate was a false resolution to something that was incredibly traumatic that we had not faced. And in fact, we sealed it up, restored the persona, put a former actor as our president, and we have gone to hell in a handbasket since, and now we're back in Watergate again. We have another chance now. But that's what happens when you don't deal with a trauma correct, correctly. So that's a film that correctly identified in a cinematic way a problem, but it didn't contain its own issue or contribute to its own understanding. I mean, I'm very happy I got as far as I did. I'm afraid most people in the world didn't get very far at all. And of course, the idea that you kill the shark is the most naive uh, idea of all. I mean, it's just there, it's just there as you're, you're scapegoating again. I, mm. I think we really, we really suffer terribly when we don't understand things. So I like films that have very strong imagery, but I think there's an, there needs to be some way to enable them to be understood. So I would argue that Hitchcock's Psycho is a moral film that shows the attack on the feminine as at the heart of this culture accurately. Now, whatever Hitchcock's own shadow issues around the feminine may have been, that film contains its own meaning and becomes a horror and a spectacle, but it's a horror and a spectacle that we can confront and learn from. Whereas if you take a film by Clint Eastwood, like uh, the early one, Play Misty for Me, I don't think it contains its, its violence. And I feel that at the time he did Jaws, Spielberg, who's a great filmmaker, had not, had not, you know, he was still more interested in sales than service, let's put it that way. And uh, I, I think he grew as a filmmaker. I think his talent is, is, is enormous. But um, I, would just, I would just bring, I, could, I would say that there are, are films that are inciting rather, that, rather than um, cathartic. And I think that's something to, hmm. to think Thank about. So, I would love to take more questions, but I want to, in closing... Can't we just have hers since she had her oh, hand yes, up? Oh, yes, please. And, uh, I didn't honor, hear you. Not, didn't not, not cut down Janet Lee at this yeah, moment. Yeah. 
I just I was just curious about you, know, you have the interest in Mai Ching and you have an interest in, in film, but um, you know there's Marie Louise from France and the fairy tales oh, yes. and how you know what if that is something that you're also you know, exposed to a lot and, and use and Sienkle also as a means of accessing the unconscious in a very direct hands-on way bypassing the intellect and both and both and. I can't bypass my intellect, so so I don't even try. But I, what I can do is 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 force it to shut up enough to t- to take in the picture. For years, I kept Grimm's fairy tales by my fer- by my uh, by my bedside, and every night because I had quite an insomnia problem, and I thought it would be helpful to ha- to to have that there in addition to whatever I, before I could get to sleep and have a dream, and so. What I would do is what's called bibliomancy. I would open up at random to a Grimm's fairy tale, and I would try to use the fairy tale I got by that synchronistic method of just opening a book somewhere, read the fairy tale, and then see if I could apply it to whatever was keeping me from sleeping that night. And I found that it was invariably oracular. And I, I, when you have to, when you're fighting. The only way to learn psychology is for dear life. When, you're, when your life depends on it, then you will learn psychology. I learned a great deal about myself from the, from the fairy tales that I selected by random that way. And they taught me a lot about in a von Franz way. I loved her books. Uh, as far as uh, sand play, I did a couple of sand plays myself in, the, in my analysis that uh, just knocked me out, and I, I did it with a couple of patients. I took them to the Jung Institute and did the sand play, and they were amazing. I decided, though, that what I do best is talk with other people. But I talk with other people in a very playful and many times indirect way. I don't talk in a, in a, in a directed cognitive behavioral way. And for me, the talking therapy is a play space, too. So I, I find I do that better. So I don't, but I have the utmost respect for both fairy tale and sand play. And I have many people that I know extremely well are extremely good sand play therapists. Yeah. Last question for you. Um, this has been so rich. I'm so grateful. Um, there's, your life has and experience have so many dimensions. What have we not touched on that uh, you would like to leave us with that uh, we haven't spoken of? How grateful I am for having had the chance to live this long. Mm. Because it really gets better if you have enough time because the patterns begin to... You don't have to work so hard to identify the patterns. They have shown themselves to you. So do you know where you're going to? Do you like what life's showing you? That line from, do you know the way to San Jose? Um, uh, yes, is the answer. I just want to say yes. I'm very grateful. John Beebe, uh, Jungian psychoanalyst, uh, past president of the San Francisco Young Institute, um, and uh, someone who has truly served to move uh, Jungian thought and practice forward. Thank you for joining us at the New School. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you all for coming. (laughs) 
You've been listening to a TNS conversation with John Beebe and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.